This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. October already? But lots to talk about. Mike Pasulo is certainly one talking point, but veteran journalist and author Brian Tui maintains that in the 1970s, Sir Arthur Tang was an even greater threat to democracy. Human rights activist and journalist Peter Murphy talking about the even closer military ties between the Philippines and Australia in the preparations for war with China to the extent of assuming the role of proxy navy. Marxist historian and author Humphrey McQueen with his thoughts on the Australian constitution had to change it without even asking. An executive director of the Gene Ethics Network, Bob Phelps, on the latest moves in that arena. But first, let's hear it from Mr. Kevin Yelly. A week, Jane, listener, when a comment we made last week was even more pronounced this week, there's always a fly in paradise. It's not that caring employers are hard to please, always need more and more corporate welfare to make a killing, because they are committed to small government, to keeping government out of the way, and this week they were pleased with the government's new jobs plan, which mostly is the government paying the bill for the training of workers the caring business class needs. And yes, caring employers were quite pleased with that, but there's always a fly. But this positive initiative will be ruined by the caring business class industrial laws. The government is planning, like same job, same pay, casuals who aren't casuals not being treated as casuals, worse, wage theft at jailable offence. We can understand the poor caring employer's concerns. As the Troubler Wazzy Chamber of Profits exploded, any positives from the government's white paper will be overwhelmed by the damage from its backward-looking industrial relations changes. And caring business class shadow minister Angus Tailings and economists from all the right-wing think tanks agreed, proving the government's got this very, very wrong. As Angus accused, union-friendly workplace changes. And all responsible practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all know progress can only be achieved by being union-unfriendly, union-unfriendly workplaces. That's the balance, the sensible centre they all crave. And another fly-in. A tax bill aimed at getting some tax out of multinationals was also attacked by the caring business classes having unforeseen consequences. Presumably, like, they might have to pay some. They weren't consulted, they complained, and quite properly too. We know that when the government wants to change laws for, say, armed robbery, it always consults the Armed Robbers and Murderers Union. But exciting news. Two weeks after filthy rich developer Tim Gurner make more and more expressed his admiration for working people, in part by making lots of them not working doll bludgers, he has snapped up a half hectare St Kilda Road site, which he will transform into high-end, uh, into high-end 800 million of luxury apartments and retail in two towers. Tim told us he has had his eye on the site for more than a decade as he, quote, cut his teeth with another developer at a site directly opposite in 2008. 
So it is humbling to come full circle, he boasted humbly. And, well, when we think of Tim, humility is the first word that springs to mind. In his thoughtful comments on the need for much, much higher unemployment, lower wages, higher productivity, workers knowing their place in the greater scheme of things, Tim also said he was sitting on 14 of the 30 development sites he owns across True Blue Aussie, and now says he will sit on this site until the time is ripe to make a killing, an appropriate killing. And I hear you've got a bit of advice for government to solve the housing crisis, Tim. Certainly, they must open up more land for development. Have to be critical of those thousands of Brisbane and Collingwood members complaining about not getting a ticket for the grand final, especially those magpies who paid extra priority one, guaranteeing them a grand final ticket, who selfishly thought paying a premium to guarantee a grand final ticket meant they would be guaranteed a grand final ticket. The ever-efficient ticket monopoly told them, among other reasons why they couldn't get a ticket, they didn't have enough in their accounts, which many wouldn't have had if tickets were a million, but they're not quite that high just yet. Small mistake. Although we hope they had all been charged a booking fee for the tickets they couldn't get, wasting the ticket monopoly's time. But their cruel selfishness was exposed by their attitude to those to whom a million is pocket money who are gifted the tickets they could afford with an afternoon of free gourmet food and fine wines and spirits thrown in. And those supporters who followed their team week after week would deprive the filthy rich corporates of that opportunity a chance to relax from an exhausting week of becoming filthy richer with a bit of networking around the room. They've, they'd seen their team week after week. Surely they could miss that one game in the interest of the filthy rich. And we can be sure the AFL Commission provided those filthy rich with helpers to answer their questions like, Who's playing? Uh, which team is which? Uh, what's a free kick? What was that one for? They, they have to put it through those big things, do they? And other indications of their love of the game, presuming they watched any of it. So what are all those supporters who missed their first game of the year complaining about? They'd seen all the others. For years, the ubiquitous Eddie McGuire Poor presided over Collingwood, and good to see Eddie showing his working-class broadie roots this week at some function for the filthy rich. Great minds and social wannabes like Eddie, who, like Tim Gurner, make more and more know what's good for this society. Eddie announcing that state big supremo, the pejorative Dan, had resigned and the whole room cheering and clapping. Bring on a caring, business-class government. Now, we have our criticisms of the pejorative Dan, but we have nothing on the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, which in page after page after page couldn't think of even one positive thing to say. A double spread of headlines over the years proving what a threat, what a disaster he had been. And after a decade of front page day after day attacking the pejorative, there was no shortage of ammunition and brickbats to those cruel critics envious of Lord Rupert's deep insights who pointed out that after a decade or so of daily denunciations, the socialists won every election with an increased majority and the pejorative had resigned on his own terms. 
hope this doesn't indicate Lord Rupert's influence has waned to the point of having no influence whatever. Good grief, people might start ignoring Lord Rupert's and his usual lackeys' objective reports and opinions and start believing that just maybe, just maybe, there is climate change, for instance. So far, the whopping sinners only had five days of telling us how irresponsible is the new big supremo, uh, but of course that is one a day. Her record has been a fondness for those huge projects governments love to announce, with huge cost overruns which could go to less sexy projects that would make life so much better. Oh, but of course, public housing, say, is not a government responsibility, else we wouldn't have an announcement of trillions on the housing crisis, guaranteeing there will not be one public asset. Indeed, the remnants of public accommodation not yet privatised will be privatised, showing the... The uh, government knows the solution to soaring and impossible costs of a roof over people's heads lies in the market, the private sector. What are the odds on Jacinta reversing that? She has announced she will not abandon the money-guzzling rail loop project, obviously aware that all that money on less sexy projects could provide immediate vast improvements to the public transport system, (laughs) as if it needs any improvements, of course. The housing package includes a brilliant panacea called the land lease system. Interesting, because when the private sector leases land, the lessee pays the owner the rent. But under this brainwave, the owner, the state, leases the land to the private sector and then pays the private sector the rent. And we wonder why the state's in deep debt. Subscribers to Lord Rupert's contribution to serious debate and divergent thought, facts distorted, will enjoy an even more balanced coverage now that it is announced former Big Supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses for the board. My word, that'll do wonders for its objectivity, as Tiny was seen this week sharing a big laugh with Voice No campaigner Warren Mundying the Waters at the National Press Club. And it would have been a side-splitting joke because they're both such funny men. Warren iterated his no-co-conspirator Jacinta's assertion that colonisation has been just the best thing for terra nullius non-land non-people. Many true blue Aussies are supporting the voice because of misplaced guilt about Indigenous history, he told us. Told us a yes vote would take away traditional rights. The Terranulius non-land non-people will lose their traditional rights to having no traditional rights, he explained. Meanwhile, Institute of Public Very Private Affairs brilliant mind John Roscoe-Commey told us Jacinta is a potential big supremo, which, given they've thrown up Constable Duffer, is an exciting possibility. Jacinta or Pete, the pen shakes over the ballot paper. On such cosmic choices, headline in the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, Nuclear Trumps Coal in the Energy Stakes. Now, with due respects to the Capitalist Review's daily push for nuclear energy, just not sure that nuclear and coal are the only choices. A little bit of digging, or perhaps less, depending how we look at it, and they might discover there are choices which don't destroy the planet one way or the other. 
although must concede we must be wrong, because great socialist environment minister Tania Plibber seek their profits in approving the expansion of two beautiful, don't be afraid of it, coal mines, said she was not satisfied it was likely to result in a net increase to greenhouse gas emissions or affect the extent to which the values of world heritage properties will be impacted by the physical effects of climate change. Goodness me, did she say climate change? And could Tania explain which bit of more and more coal is not likely to result in a net increase to greenhouse gas emissions? Well, she must know, because the government's committed to reducing that which it's increasing. On those wise people, I don't think anyone's missed the irony of Hayseed and Sheepshit Party former sports rorts minister Bridget McConsey leading the baying pack in investigating alleged rorts at the airline which used to be our airline, and just possibly the reason for her righteous baying by the socialist government. Finally, for a last word on the grand final, we've asked our expert commentator, Michelle, for her thoughts. Very interesting, Kevin. Both teams wanted the game to be played only on the right wing, making for a crowded game. And the socialist captain, Mr. Albinuzzi, wanted the goalpost to have a yes sign across the top, and the caring business class team captain, Constable Duffer, wanted a no sign. Very interesting, Kevin. And Michelle, a sensation. I, I hear there was a moat around the Oval. Uh, very interesting, Kevin. Just around the right wing, because no one went anywhere near the left wing. It, it was an initiative of Mr. Maul's The Bad Guys, who filled the moat with nuclear-powered submarines to protect the players from a threat somewhere in Asia, although he said he had no, no country in mind. Sensational. Uh, what are your uh, final thoughts, Michelle? Very interesting, Kevin. Uh, thank you, Michelle, for your deep insights. Well, that's it, listener, and uh, good afternoon. Mr. Kevin Healy, and more at 9 o'clock tomorrow with City Limits and Friends. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit wildlife emergency response service dedicated to helping wildlife in need across Victoria. Our volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned wildlife. If you see wildlife that may need our help, on the road, in your backyard or in the bush, please contact us immediately on 84007300. That's 84007300. To donate or to become a volunteer, visit wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Speaking now with retired academic and human rights activist, Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees, about the standing aside of public servant Mike Brazillo on the 25th of September at the direction of Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill, pending an investigation following revelations he had made partisan intervention 
during the 2018 Liberal Party of Australia leadership spill. That Brazulo allegedly used undue influence in this process by communicating his leadership and ministerial preferences to a Liberal Party power broker. Writing in Pearls and Irritations three days later, Stuart wrote a piece which he titled The Despotism of Mike Pizzullo. Stuart, you've described a man who many would say has dedicated nearly 40 years of his life as a public servant in Australia as a despot. How do you justify this description of despotism? Well, there's lots of evidence. He seemed to only know, uh, certainly in his, as he became more important, he only seemed to know about how to exercise power from the top down and to expect compliance, obedience. And he became, I think, extremely confident about his own wisdom, which he thought, which he seemed to think that everybody else should share. And, um, I mean, the other other feature of his despotism as he couldn't he severely reprimanded critics i mean he almost chased certain politicians if they dared to um, question him but the other thing i think i need to say is that this was all part of a culture of authoritarianism which he helped to build and which people like minister peter dutton happily went along with that's it people weren't going to challenge him is that how you say it except the people around his circle, they agree with him, but the rest sure. of them were too frightened. It doesn't look as though anybody challenged it very much, partly because when I talked to people in his department, they were fearful. If you look at the numbers of very senior people who, who left, dismayed their morale at rock bottom, it's a bit like bullies don't like to be challenged. They only stop bullying when they are challenged, when... In my terms, you draw a line in the sand and say, I'm sorry, we don't put up with this. Let's look at the man. How did he get to the place where he is? I mean, I haven't followed his career that closely, but it was obvious that he worked on both sides of the aisle, with Labour, with Liberals. In a way, he was a consummate politician, not just a public servant. I think he was uh, preoccupied with with his self-importance, preoccupied with accumulating power by moving around. I mean, just even the amalgamation of about seven or eight different agencies into the Department of Home Affairs. I mean, that was a bit like politically like building his own empire. Now it's been shown that the emperor has no clothes, but, but it's taken a very long time to get there. But he didn't do that all by himself, did he? No, well, I mean, there are two sides to the two, two responses to him. One is to find allies like that and Morrison and other people who like to throw their weight around as though that was the way to conduct administration politics. And the other side of the coin is to, is to fear, a culture of fear, the, the compliance that um, was expected of, of people further down a hierarchy. That sort of um, style of behavior might be appropriate in the military, probably mostly appropriate in running uh, a prison, but not, not running government agencies or NGOs or even political parties, unless you're part of uh, 
you know, Daniel Ortega's dictatorship in Nicaragua or, or the Putin regime in Russia. It's interesting, though, that the departments that he brought together under his leadership. Well, yeah, there's a huge variety, but there's a common thread there. And yes. It's about despotism in a way. If you think that one of the couple of the departments are about the treatment of asylum seekers, there's no sign of humanity. There's no sign of compassion. There's no sign of um, planning for a future in which people's lives are cherished. On the contrary, it's all about it's all about stop the boats. It's all about introducing the military option as a way to deal with vulnerable people. And then you've got ASIO. You've got the Federal Police, if you watch their behaviour at, at Senate Estimates Committees, you can see they, they're not easily cross-examined either. So those are the two sides, two reasons why Pizzullo rose to the top. One, he had some powerful allies who, who also thought like him, namely Constable Dutton. And um, the other side of the coin is that people were scared out of their wits to question him. I mean, of the few who did, he, he usually chased, it looks as, among the politicians, it looks as though he chases them up on the telephone. Yeah, look, it's the treatment of whistleblowers as well. You can see the appalling treatment of Julian Assange. Overall culture of control and repression spreads like a pandemic. Essentially, what we're talking about, Jan, in, when I refer to terms like despotism or authoritarianism, it's about a way of thinking a way of thinking that doesn't really allow space for other ways of thinking. I'd like to know who the, the very brave person or persons are who actually blew the whistle on him. The interesting thing is, I mean, the point of my article recently or yesterday was that the, the, the journalists from the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age and 60 Minutes, their investigation was about him breaking the rule, the Westminster rules about the nature of government, namely the separation between the role of the politician and the role of the public servant. And so that the expose of Pizzullo is because he broke, he broke that principle. My argument is that they, the, there was a, another major issue, which, is, which was this bullying, this despotism, this authoritarianism, which I would argue is probably pretty, pretty much related to his disdain for the Westminster system. In other words, it was bigger than that. He was above it, and uh, people should just merely line up and agree with him. But it's, it was um, uh, luckily the expose of his refusal to abide by the Westminster rules has given people like myself and Greg Barnes and others a chance to say, well, what about what about the guy's bullying behaviour? It's gone on for for ages, and we need to look at that as well. So, does that Department of Home Affairs needs to be disbanded? If you go back to thinking that small is beautiful, that you want to see the relationship between what you do and the consequences, you'd have to say that it's gargantuan. So that this idea of amalgamating and amalgamating. In terms of public administration, not a very good idea. But it's a bit late in the day to say that. Yes, but it can't go on. No, it can't go on. I suspect 
the Albanese government, once, once this inquiry into Pizzullo has got underway, will disband home affairs. Well, home affairs will stay, but, but half a dozen of those departments that fall under the, the heading home affairs will, will go somewhere else. There's been a bit of criticism that Albanese didn't act earlier. He's been in power for what? Look, I think the trouble is Labor I mean, continued Pizzullo, whatever they thought about him. They they didn't dare to challenge. They didn't dare to, to sack him to get rid of him as soon as they came to power. They went along with it. He must have taken that as a cue that he could continue to do as he do as he liked. Labour's got to have the courage of its convictions, which is uh, lacking in too many quarters. There's got to be a future to this, though. He is finished, do you believe, or not? That he's not going to let well, this I think, one... Well, I mean, he's been... Pazuno himself has been suspended anyway. I mean, he's not... I think he's due. I think he's had it. I mean, I think he's, um, he's not likely to ever be reinstated. I can't see how they... They could after this. They can't turn a blind eye to what he's been doing. But I want to see the misuse of authority addressed. You know, I called it despotism. It looked, sometimes it looked like standover tactics. Can you imagine him looking for a future in the military or somewhere? <laughs> well, that's, yeah, yeah. Look, you know, there are some people in the way way they think around around the globe who'd, who'd love to militarise everything. There's a trend in that direction. Well, just finally, Stuart, you'd like to say a few words about The Voice and the the no campaigners, the, yeah. the leading no campaigners. Sure. Well, in a way, there's a certain sadness about this discussion because authoritarianism, as, and I would say racism, has, has risen to the surface. This easy statement about no, based on all sorts of false claims, has been promoted, desperately promoted by Dutton, who, could, who see, was, I don't think he's in, a blind bit interested in the welfare of indigenous people, but he sees a chance of um, undermining the Labour government. And of course, he's got these opportunist, opportunist colleagues, Warren Mundine, and Senator Price. Mundine is a disgrace. He's a moral, intellectual disgrace. The guy is, uh, is a man for all seasons, uh, only, only concerned to big note himself, always, always opportunist. I met Warren when he was president of the Labour Party. Then I met him again when he was a Liberal candidate in the constituency where I live. I think the guy knows what he really stands for. And then you can see that in the stupid utterance about uh, the Uluru Statement being a war against Australia. The, the mediocrity is appalling. And then you've got somebody like Price, who at long last has got a, a public position so that the anger that she seems to have carried most of her days can find expression. It's an anger that lots of people feel that the world should revolve around them, but you know, you usually have to spend a fair bit of your time shedding your anger. And uh, so instead of that, we've had to victimise the voice by giving so much oxygen 
to people like Mundine and Price. I mean, it's not only them, because there are some, some other uh, characters who have no capacity for compassion, no capacity for generosity, no, compassion, no capacity for saying, let's give this initiative a chance. It's so far looking very sad, a very sad commentary about the state of the public mind in Australia. And as you said, the fact that it's allowed racism to run rampant in certain places. Oh, oh it absolutely is allowed. It, you, you, in a way, the, the admission that um, racism has been allowed to run rampant was made by Mundine when he kept on protesting that Australians are not racists. Well, and then there's the other absurdity from Price that there were no no consequences from colonialism, no co- no bad consequences for indigenous people from colonialism. I mean, historically, I'd give a one if I was generous, I'd give a one out of ten for that essay. October the the fifteenth, sixteenth. What do you think that's going to bring to Australia? It's a result of the referendum, you mean? Yes. I've no idea. I mean, I. I I've no idea what the post-mortem is going to look like. I mean, I, I'm hoping for a miracle. I understand this morning that certain leaders of the black sovereignty movement have decided to vote yes because they don't want to be aligned with people like Peter Dutton and Pauline Hanson. I would have thought the argument against the no campaign is to say, well, do, you really, do you really want to be in association with Jacinta Price Warren Mundine, Peter Dutton, Pauline Hanson, Alan Jones. I mean, is that, is that the best you could do? The trouble is there's so many of them, isn't there? They've got the platform to espouse all their racist views. Yeah, it's about the way we influence values of the way we influence we all think. And uh, you and I have discussed that with regard to, you know, 100 issues. All right, well, we'll await and see what happens. All right, Jan, and maybe, maybe you, you and I generate some optimism in a couple of weeks' time. <laughs> good day. Okay, yeah, good to talk to you. Bye-bye. Bye. I've been speaking with Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees, firstly about the standing aside of the head of the Department of Home Affairs as a result of taking sides in internal political party matters. Journalist and author Brian Tui agrees that there is a good case for sacking Zulo, but there is an even stronger case, that of Sir Arthur Tang, the head of the Defence Department, who should have been sacked in the 1970s. First, Brian, can you talk about those often tumultuous times between 1972 and the sacking of Whitland at the end of 1975? You were there in the thick of it. I worked for Lance Barnard, who was the defence minister for about seven weeks before joining the financial review. And before that, I'd worked for Barnard uh, for about two years in opposition, but I also had contact with Whitlam during that period. Well, we're talking about Sir Arthur Tang, and you've written that he was a more dangerous person to democracy than what we're seeing today with Mike Vassello. Can you explain why you have that belief? Oh, it's more than a belief. It's based on the simple fact that Tang 
lied to Whitlam about what Pine Gap, the big satellite base near Alice Springs, as to who ran it. It's just really impossible to say that it's okay for a public servant to lie to a prime minister. And that was because Tang thought he was the keeper of all the secrets. But he should have told, in a briefing, very soon after the election of the government, Tang briefed both, insisted on briefing Whitlam almost immediately, even though he was incredibly busy, and Barnard, with no staff present. It was later found out that, was, that he, he told him that Pine Gap was run by a branch of the defense, US Defense Department. That was simply not true, and he should never have said it. This is you know, documented, and that's why I say it. Well, the next question is, why did he do it? Oh, because I think he was obsessive about secrecy, and he wanted to keep all these secrets to himself. No other public servant or department head would dream of doing this. I mean, what, he couldn't argue that he would make a decision as to whether Whitlam was a security risk or not. Whitlam kept secrets. If he was asked to do it, he'd keep secrets. Do you believe he had any connection with um, the CIA or the American government? Certainly had a connection with a branch of the CIA that was the science and technology branch, which ran Pine Gap. He didn't really approve of the sort of dirty tricks or covert action side of the CIA. But then again, as he was getting desperate uh, to stop to stop Whitlam from saying anything about who ran Pine Gap, this is near the time of Whitlam's sacking. Basically, uh, what happened there is that I wrote in the Financial Review that Pine Gap was run by the CIA and its original head was a person called Richard Stallings. And then what Whitlam did, he also, not from me, he was told by some other Labor Party staffers that Stallings was the first head of um, Pine Gap and therefore and worked for the CIA. And so what happened was that Whitlam asked, uh, normally all anyone who's an official in, in coming into Australia has to register with or put their name down with the Foreign Affairs Department, but it wasn't there. And he, he only found out when he told the head of his department to really pressure Tang to say who was Richard Stallings. And that's when Tang said that he worked as the first head of Pine Gap. And then he came back and did part-time work in South Australia, uh, which another CIA person who knew Stallings very well said was on the side of on the side of the before the actual covert action side and what tang was worried about then was that he didn't want with them to say that pine gap was run by the cia and how this happened how whitlam got to to discuss that pine gap was run by at the beginning uh, was run by this guy, Richard Stallings, and then, who was part of the CIA, is that he, Stallings, rented the house of Doug Anthony, who was the head of the National Party or Country Party at, at that stage, Deputy Prime Minister. And he said in Parliament that Stallings was definitely not a member of the CIA, mainly because Stallings had never told him, and, that, and he asked Whitlam to prove that he was, and Whitlam could do that because he uh, um, he put a notice. This is uh, Anthony put a notice on the notice pa- question on the notice paper, and Whitlam wrote a reply which said, 
I know this because defence, brackets Tang, uh, has told us this or told him this, and he hasn't, obviously, he hasn't told Anthony. That's the only reason Anthony didn't know it. However, Tang was so desperate not to have this question answered that he, he put a note to Whitlam, which was just outrageous. It said, under no circumstances should you give that answer that you prepared because events have changed. The US Defence Department is going to say that Stallings worked for them, not the CIA. And statement from the Defence Department in America never came out. And I think for the very good reason that they knew that would be a lie. And it was very easy to show how it was a lie is that the then head of the East Asia Division of, this is back in 1975, the CIA's East Asia Division, which ran, which in charge of Australia, etc. This guy was worried about what Whitlam was doing in terms of Pine Gap and that, and said, and sent a, a telex to ASIO saying, unless you can tell me what the Whitlam government's up to, we may have to cut off intelligence relations. And because Stallings has worked, has always been, has worked for the CIA. So there's no doubt that that would have been known to the Defence Department in America that he was going to say that, or he, that he did. So it's absolutely stupid to try and suggest that the Defence Department in America was going to deny something which was public, because I released those words from the telex machine as well, from the, from the telex. And what was the reaction when you talked about this story, wrote about it? Well, it meant to me that it was I was doing a very important writing up a very important thing because it's absolutely essential in our democracy that senior public servants tell the truth when they're talking to a prime minister. And so instead, Tang tried to do the opposite. He tried to. It was a very arrogant way he wrote this. Net, you must under no circumstances say the your prepared answer, etc. And it was all because the only thing I can think of is that he Tang wanted to keep the idea that he's in charge of all the secrets. The secrets are out uh, by then because this telex also leaked from the head of the CIA's East Asia Division, which showed you know, he's not going to say that he worked for the CIA as Stallings, but unless it was true. The other bizarre thing is Tang thought he was had such tight control over all these secrets. Meanwhile, over in America, there was a company that, or a contractor, contractor to the CIA in California, very big contractor, who basically looked after and ran all of the stuff involving Pine Gap and the satellites and so forth. And there were eight code clerks in a vault, a very you know, super secure vault at this uh, contractor's place. And they had a very good time. There's the eight of them. They were sort of school, high school dropouts. They mixed up the Kiris in, in, the, in the office every afternoon at big parties, and they mixed them up in a, in a blender, which was supposed to be you know, blending up secure documents and so forth. And they brought the alcohol in, in satchels, which the guards were not op- allowed to open. And one of them took out a whole lot of documents in the same satchels and sold them to the Soviet Union. While Tang was thinking, I'm keeping all of these secrets, the Americans were doing a very bad job of, of uh, keeping the secrets because high school dropouts, basically uh, drug dealers as well, all that sort of stuff. No sort of security over in America. 
as Tang was busily refusing to tell the Prime Minister, to tell the Prime Minister what this young code clerk had told, told, told the Soviet Union. And the significance of all this was that Pine Gap was coming up for renewal. Is that the case? Yeah, that is correct. You, you had to give notice. You could give notice just before it looked like it would be just before Whitlam was going to be sacked by Kerr. In fact, Kerr sacked him on the November 11, before Whitlam had a, had a chance to give that notice. Whether he would have done that notice, we don't know. But the Americans were very worried that he might. And so was Kang, of course. Uh, of course, it was per- the way they were treating him, he was perfectly uh, entitled to do that. Here he, he'd been lied about what Pine Gap did. Uh, what it did, by the way, is it was linked to satellites, which was intelligence gathering or information gathering satellites a long way out in space. And um, in his briefing to Whitlam and Barnard, he told them they could not even say that Pine Gap was linked to satellites, even though a previous defence minister had told Parliament that that was the case. And they did that just before Tang was made head of the Defence Department. So the, the, the then head didn't mind. And of course, it made you know, this ridiculous sort of thing to say that it's not uh, linked to, to satellites. I mean, the Americans had no problem. problem. They knew that too, obviously. So it was just crazy stuff on the part of Tang, who was obsessed with secrecy. In retrospect, Brian, do you believe that Whitlam would have renewed that lease or would he have not? I don't know for certain. I think he would have. Whitlam, in one level, was a sort of conservative person. Look, I shouldn't say that on another level. He he brought about huge changes in Australia and he uh, was quite radical in willing to change the existing pattern of things. But he still wanted to get on with the Americans and he also wanted to stand up to them when he should and that was new for them. But um, actually, the, the guy who was the ambassador... Marshall Green was the only one who was sensible, I think, at that time. He, he, he gave a speech in New York saying, look, this government is really no different to the uh, social democrat governments we de- we've dealt with in Europe for years. So don't get too excited about it. But Nixon, in particular, was absolutely enraged by the election of the Whitlam government for no good reason. Did Whitlam ever acknowledge that the US and the CIA were involved in his sacking? He didn't say it at the time, but he did in Parliament in 1977, where he gave a speech setting, setting this out. And Arthur Tang, where did he go from there? He was the ultimate survivor. He stayed as the head of the Defence Department until 1979. He'd stayed too long. He'd spent 10 years as head of the uh, Foreign Affairs Department or External Affairs Department, it was called. Uh, he then got kicked out or was kicked off to India because because uh, Menzies couldn't stand him and uh, he didn't do anything much. In, he's supposed to be the High Commissioner there. He didn't do much there, but he came back and in 1970 he became head of the Defence Department and uh, he, he reti- retired from that in 1979. But with the absolute accolades from everyone about what a wonderful traditional public servant he was. He was far from traditional. Uh, he was 
demanding that he had all this power, not the Prime Minister. And compared to what Pizzullo has been alleged to have done? <laughs> well, look, Pizzullo, he broke the public service rules. I don't think there's much doubt about that. But as far as I know, he didn't point blank lie to the Prime Minister. And he may well have, for all I know, but on what's come out, uh, he, he certainly was not behaving like a proper public servant. He was dealing, telling things to uh, someone who was a very much a Liberal Party. I, I suppose he's, he was a lobbyist, much of it. but he was had the ear of the Prime Minister. He'd tell him things that he wanted the Prime Minister to know. So I, 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 at the moment, he definitely deserves, he shouldn't have the job as his head of Home Affairs, but uh, I don't think it was as bad as what Tang did. We'll go back to 1975 and Pine Gap, and we look at mm. Pine Gap now in 2023. What's your mm -hmm. assessment? Oh, well, it's, it's much, much bigger. Uh, got a lot, more, a lot more satellites and so forth, and they're more powerful. But basically, it's the same function. Pine Gap is able to intercept huge amounts of messages, you know, phone calls, texts, emails, all of that sort of stuff, radar signals and so on. And this is all put into, it helps the Americans with their global surveillance of, of citizens around the world, but it also helps them with their war making because all this information goes into the American war making machinery or the uh, war fighting machinery, I probably should say. And so it's used there mainly in giving information about uh, targets and so forth from uh, things like radar signals and so on. Democracy, where does it stand when you have public servants of the ilk of Basulo and Tang? Well, not living in a proper uh, democracy when that is the case. I mean, our, our democracy is at the pin pinnacle of that democracy is the parliament and the executive government, which means the cabinet ministers and, of course, the prime minister. It doesn't mean that one public servant who's not elected says he might, he'll make his mind up at what, uh, what's told to the Prime Minister. I know there's another example on the scale of what Tang did uh, in the public service. I mean, I think a lot of people think he was one of those crusty old mandarins in, in the, you know, the great days of when the public service were just gave advice and fierce, fierce and, and, and uh, independent and all of that. But uh, he was lying to the Prime Minister. And that, I can't think of another example, of a major example, of anyone doing that back then or since. Just looking at an article in Wikipedia, it's written that he was one of the most influential people in the government for nearly 30 years, earning him respect and disdain in equal measures. <laughs> well, probably that's true, yeah. But... Um, it should be disdain for, for lying to the Prime Minister. Thank you, Brian. Okay, thanks very much, Jan. And I've been speaking with veteran journalist and author, Brian Tui. We have a right to be in public space undertaking political activity. That is not something that people should be telling us that we can't do. Multiple actions rolling over months and years and create huge sustained pressure of social change. And what we're seeing around the country right now is increasing repression of protest. Protest works. 
That's why I think we're seeing it criminalised all over the place. 3CR. Stay tuned. Stay radical. So this is in the middle of the pandemic where this billionaire is suing the Pentagon for a military contract for what most people think is the place that you order books from. It's a very interesting case study in pulling out the different threads of militarism and how it can really be embedded in so many aspects of our lives that we don't even realize that when we order something from Amazon that we're putting workers' lives at risk and that we're supporting what is becoming an increasingly important actor in the military-industrial complex. Exposing that to people, I think, is very important. People will care if they understand that this is how things are all interconnected and linked. It's surfacing that information, it's making that accessible and making it relevant for people's lives. And I think that is another opportunity that COVID-19 really presents to us is that we are all connected and these structures are all connected. We can see that much more clearly now than we could before. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 Speaking now with human rights activist Peter Murphy. Catching up, Peter, what's been happening in the Philippines while you were visiting Zimbabwe. First, the visit to that country of Australian Prime Minister Albanese and others. Not so much of his visits, but the message they took with them. Even stronger ties with a government that appears to ignore human rights abuses, particularly assassinations of leaders of the trade union and peasant organisations. Yes, I think it's, um, I don't know what to say, but the, the right word here, the significance of uh, Prime Minister Albanese's visit to Manila this time was to endorse the government of President Marcos Jr. in the uh, set of alliances being built up against China, led by the United States. So it was completely uncritical of the internal situation in the Philippines, which is really one of uh, extreme you know, human rights violations. And you wouldn't say uh, it's exactly like his, you know, President Marcos's father's dictatorship, but uh, it's really very serious that uh, continuing to have reports of trade union organisers killed. We're continuing to very recently of young environmental campaigners being abducted and accused of being terrorists. The behaviour of the security forces in the Philippines is one of open warfare against their own people and uh, there's no sense among those agencies like police and armies especially that there's any danger that anyone would be called to account for what they're doing wrong, for the, the things they do that are so clearly wrong. Our government making the visit is, is really very, very serious uh, in that regard. It's really uh, cloaking the, the rampant problems in, in the society and making Australia more and more complicit with that repression. And I don't suppose too many Australians realise or know that 
that Australia actually helped to draft the anti-terrorism laws for the Philippines. Yes, there's a, there was a little bit of bragging about that at the time back in 2020, and it continues to be noted, you know, in posts on the embassy website and in DFAT's website. But uh, yes, it's not something that they're actually talking up in, in any other forum. And uh, again, it's it's really appalling that it's a sort of a enmeshment of the intelligence agencies of both countries. Most members of parliament wouldn't know that that happened even. And of course, uh, the anti-terrorism law in the Philippines created an anti-terrorism council that's just full of people from the military and the police. Its head is technically the president of the Philippines. It's got the power to just declare people to be terrorists without any judicial process. Part of the consequences of these sort of declarations is intense surveillance uh, of people. Uh, also, they can be detained without any uh, charge for 24 days <clears throat> and interrogated in isolation. Then their, their financial assets can be frozen. All of that without any court hearing any matter. So eventually, people could come get to a court. It might take a year, may take longer, and uh, maybe these things would be overturned. But you can see the intense uh, damage that, that this type of uh, agency now, this the, the anti-terrorism law, has enabled. It's bad. And people from the Philippines and other places still remember the regime of Marcos Jr.'s father. And there was a candlelight vigil earlier last month. He mightn't be quite that stage yet, but you know, he is his son, and he's he hasn't denied any of the charges against his father. That's right. It's it's actually a campaign by the family, the Marcos family, to say that the the father, the dictator Marcos, his his period of government was uh, the golden era of the Philippines. So it's a complete whitewashing of the actual record of that regime and uh, a sort of denial of the history of people's resistance to it and its eventual overthrow. So children and even the actual living survivors of that time and their children are continuing to hold actions, events, all sorts of levels, you know, forums, but also little vigils, prayer meetings and so on, conferences, and uh, to draw attention to the facts and to keep keep alive among the Filipino people the, the, the danger of this type of government. And I would say that people just cannot quite remember <laughs> clearly enough what happened under Marcos Senior, but under Duterte, he's only just stepped down a year ago. It's really like more than, it was more than Marcos. More people were killed. More people were detained. The level of violence in the country was higher this is this is a sad fact, and I think that our government now it's changed you know a year ago too is is seemingly um prepared just to turn a blind eye to the to the reality and stick to the plan that's uh, the long term relationship with the United States, sort of no matter what the cost. I think this is morally damaging for Australia's society and it will will hurt australian people if if our government can tolerate the level of repression that's going on all the time in the Philippines, they will tolerate something like that in Australia as well. And we've not only got the son of the dictator as president, but we've got the daughter of the former 
I suppose you'd say, yeah. rogue as the vice president. Yeah, so yeah, the psychology is a bit uh, different. So uh, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. is a real uh, playboy uh, sort of character. He wants to have fun. He doesn't get out there talking um, and abusing and threatening in the same way. And completely different, actually, from Duterte. But Duterte's daughter is a hyperactive, very, very aggressive political uh, player. She's looking to the period after the term of this president. That would be her turn to be president. And certainly she has to protect her family from accountability for what happened under her father's presidency. So that's still a, a, um, a big issue that the International Criminal Court is investigating uh, crimes against humanity under her father. And both Marcos and, and Sarah Duterte are uh, militant in their language against the International Criminal Court. So, you know, it's another measure, I think, of um, how the Philippines is a pariah state, really. You mentioned the two environmental activists. What's the story behind that? In May uh, this year, uh, or June, I'm not quite sure of the dates now, uh, there was a campaign in the Manila Bay area against some land reclamation projects. These are fairly high-level uh, flagship-type projects promoted by President Marcos. So this one was near in the Bataan Peninsula area, and uh, so not Manila itself. And this is really about people whose livelihoods are based on fishing and gardening, having their, their land and fishing area, immediate fishing area, taken over for a reclamation project. So there's ecological as well as social uh, concerns that the people raise. So these two young women, one was 20 years old, one was 21, they're uh, I think biological science graduates from the University of the Philippines. They were doing the investigation of the impacts of this project. You know, an unmarked white van pulled up beside them. They were grabbed and chucked in. It didn't reappear for nearly two months. So there was a campaign to find them. Uh, their family, of course, was really, really freaked out by what happened, And uh, but also the organisations that they were working with uh, in the communities there was lifted to an international level. So there was a lot of uh, calls from uh, overseas for the two of them to be surfaced and to condemn the security forces for grabbing them. And then, uh, so the, the the notorious group in the security forces now is called the NTSELCAC. It's a real mouthful, but it's a national task force to end local communist armed conflict. It only seems to attack unarmed people. They held a media conference at which they said that these two young women were not abducted, that they suspected that they were somehow associated with the New People's Army and this type of uh, smearing. And then uh, uh, there was uproar after that uh, media conference because the two young women were not released and they weren't brought back to the public. So further legal action was pursued and, and after a few more weeks, they were presented at a media conference. On the one hand, the NTFL CAC said that they'd signed statements admitting that they were NPA and that they were surrendering, but the two women spoke up for themselves in that media conference and said that they were threatened that they would be killed unless they signed the statements and that they were they were kidnapped. They didn't uh, offer themselves up to the police. And so, you know, there's a further level of scandal 
you know, developing around this now, but at least these two people are alive and back with their families and we'll probably hear a little bit more yet about what happened and where it happened. Um, but I think it demonstrates that the anti-FLCAC, um, which is this flagship internal repressive security force, the Australian government is well informed about its activities and yet there, there was not one mention uh, made of this type of thing while our Prime Minister, our Foreign Minister and our Defence Minister made visits to the Philippines in, in this last August-September period, not one. And that's when these two young women were um, being held against their will. That's what I'm saying about the moral damage to Australia and the danger for Australian society that our policy seems to go this way. And those two young women were the, they were the lucky ones. They survived. Yes, they, they survived. You know, we don't quite know what level of trauma they, they suffered. That's why I'm saying there'll be more, there should be more information and I hope, hope we can find a way to publicise this more in Australia. What's happening, Peter, with the, the new US bases in the Philippines? We're told that two governors, I believe, were not happy about that and were campaigning against them. Has there been a development in that? I know more than that. I think, Jan, the, it's the governor of Cagayan province that's on the northeast side of Luzon, an area close to Taiwan. That's where there really is a significant opposition from not only the governor, of course, but from the people to the development of a naval base there for the US. These things take a while to, to unfold. The decision's been made, and then, of course, the investment in the infrastructure and all that has to happen. I haven't heard of any further big rallies, but I, I do know that this is quite a conversation in the Philippines. And uh, on the Chinese side, they're saying if the Philippines has got a problem with China over the South China Sea, which we're all well aware of, that's one thing. That's something that can be worked out, the Chinese apparently say. But uh, if it's about Taiwan, that's no, no uh, interest to the Philippines at all. There's much more of a sense of threat you know, from China if this US base goes in and if there's any deployment of forces towards Taiwan. You know, the sort of temperature is rising to a hot level and uh, those US bases, especially that one, is uh, causing uh, like a lot of stress. You know, I should go back and say that, you know, Prime Minister Albanese's visit was to sign a strategic partnership agreement between Australia and the Philippines. So we, we've already had a visiting forces agreement since 2000 um, and I think it was ratified in about 2012. That allows Australian troops to, to be deployed into the Philippines and Filipino troops to come to Australia. And that's been happening. But now there's now an agreement that the Australian Navy will conduct joint patrols in the South China Sea with the Philippine Coast Guard. Uh, the Philippines really doesn't have anything that we call a Navy. So that there's a, a, a danger that now Australia will be a proxy there and uh, there could be a clash of some sort between the Chinese Navy and Chinese Coast Guard on the one hand and the Australian Navy and Philippine Coast Guard on the other. Again, this is something that there's no discussion in Australia about. It could be one of those things that, that triggers something much more dangerous. How would you assess the previous relationship between the Philippines and Taiwan? In my mind, they're, they're both basically... You know, and allies of the United States. There's really long-standing uh, social connections between the Philippines and China and Taiwan. They go back 
well into the 19th and 19th centuries. There's a lot of economic relationship between the two countries going back many decades in terms of Taiwanese investment into special economic zones in the Philippines and also Filipinos as migrant labour in Taiwan. A lot of the buses that, that work in the Philippines are second-hand Taiwan buses. So there's, there's actually a lot of connections. But I think the main one you know, you're talking about here is the political one about you know, well, what, what's going to happen between Taiwan and mainland China on the one hand and Philippines and Taiwan on the other. From what I read, it's very, very unlikely that anyone in the region is going to deploy forces into a war over Taiwan. That's just my reading of the recent literature. So Japan would allow American operations from Japan towards Taiwan, but not Japanese troops. And it looks like South Korea has got the same attitude. Philippines has got the same attitude. Yeah, that's, that's where it is at the moment, but, you know, it's a moving feast, I think. Finally, Peter, in your role as a representative of PUL, the Australia-Philippines Union Link, the situation in Germany where the state is sanctioning anti-Palestinian repression, what's happening there? Well, I think we've got a broader solidarity attitude that uh, encompasses the Palestinian people's struggle, as is for self-determination and to end the occupation. What's going on in Germany, it seems to be a very extreme case of Palestinian uh, people living in Germany, not being allowed to have an organization or to hold events to raise concern about the ongoing occupation, especially the seizure of more land, the crushing of more and more, uh, even suburbs in, in uh, East Jerusalem and in the West Bank. So things which, you know, in Australia's sort of public discussion about uh, Palestine are seen as, you know, egregious breaches of international law. The German government, it seems it doesn't matter whether it's a, a Christian Democrat or a social Democrat government, is committed to stopping that type of criticism of Israel. Naturally enough, there's a growing struggle in Germany about that and we, we wanted to show our support for the Palestinian people there and for their German allies. And the people of Germany are supporting Palestinians? Well, it'd be like Australia. I think there's, there's a very broad sympathy for the Palestinians um, among Australian people because I think we can all see that they're the underdog um, and I'm pretty sure in Germany it's similar. There's, you know, a historical reality for the German people that they uh, had a regime, the Nazi regime, which tried to commit genocide against uh, Jewish people. And so there's a very strong commitment among German people to uh, atone for that and to make sure it doesn't happen again. But that's been abused, that particular commitment is being abused to allow no protests against extreme breaches of international human rights law by the Israeli government. It's one of those things, and I, I, I think that in Germany there will be more and more solidarity around this issue with the Palestinian activists. Thank you once again, Peter. Okay, thank you very much, Jan. And Peter Murphy is a human rights activist and journalist. You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are, at home, work, 
driving, on public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. Three CR. Stay tuned. Stay radical. We demand the full restoration of all Indigenous lands and resources, and we demand the immediate cessation of all forms of exploitation and destruction of our land. We're here to remind you of our sovereignty and our original demand from day one. It started with intentional genocide of our people around the round table in England. It's all lies here. Everything's a lie. It's a great opportunity right now to step into a sovereign, independent republic. We demand a treaty. We demand our lands back. We demand to stop black death in custody. Next on the program, historian and author Humphrey McQueen with all you need to know about the Constitution and how to change that Constitution without asking. We now come as a bit of a surprise to some Australians to discover that we have a Constitution at all. One of the other things that might come as a surprise even to people who know that is that until 1986, the Australian Constitution was an act of the Imperial Parliament. And on paper, the Parliament in London could have altered any bit of the Australian Constitution. Now, of course, they wouldn't do that because they'd had a lot of trouble with the North Americans trying to do things like that over a couple of hundred years. So what they did, they got smart and they found other ways to get what they wanted um, out of us. But the Constitution, as, as an act of Parliament they say, repatriated in 1986. So the British Parliament and the Australian Parliament passed the same legislation at the same time. Well, you know, within a few days of each other. So that it is now no longer an act of the, of the British Parliament. The draft constitution was drafted in 1891 and then it went through all kinds of discussions at the Federation Conventions But one of the concerns that the British Parliament had um, and the British government had was whether there would be appeals from the High Court in Australia to the Privy Council in England. And what they were particularly concerned about was because we borrowed, or the governments here borrowed so much money on the London stock market, on the London bond market, and there'd been all these bank failures in Australia and elsewhere in the 1890s, they were worried that if the final appeal were in Australia, the British bondholders might not get their money back. So they were insisting that the right of appeal on all these matters, on everything, go on to the Privy Council, that it would be the highest court. Now, a lot of the Australians felt that this was an insult and they didn't want to do that at all. The colonial secretary, Joseph Chamberlain, blew in the ear of the New South Wales Premier when he was in London, George Reid, and got him to go to the Adelaide Convention and put up a proposal that would 
partly satisfy the British bondholders. The convention didn't agree with that in full. And so by the time the Australian delegation, one from each of the colonies, went off to London in 1900, they just assumed that the final draft out of Australia would be the version that would become the Constitution of Australia. Well, they were in for a surprise because Chamberlain said to them again, we are not going to pass this. The Australian delegates are on the verge of turning around and coming home. That was an extraordinary thing which most people don't know about is we almost didn't have a federation in 1901 because of this appeals to the Privy Council to protect the interest of the British investor. At the last minute, there was a compromise. And what we ended up with was that, yes, you could appeal to the Privy Council uh, under certain circumstances. And you know, so that certainly went through. That's how the Constitution became an act. By The British Parliament I was prepared to pass it on those grounds. It went into law and then was enacted on the 1st of January 1901. But it's a case of following the money. However, of course, the British bondholders knew better than to simply trust an appeal to the Privy Council because that could take you know, a year or two and their money would be gone by then. So they had a, a kind of a banker in England who became a member of the House of Lords, of course, and his job was to ride shotgun over the loans to Australia. Now, because of the drought and things in Australia, the Federation drought, they didn't have any money, and he said, we're not going to lend you any more money in 1903. You just have to go without. And then he stopped South Australia getting money again a bit later. So what we found was that this man who had a job in the Westminster Bank, he was actually running a big bit of the finances of Australia. And as far as one could tell, there's no wording in the Constitution giving anyone that kind of power, except, of course, that was how the British Empire operated. The next way of changing the constitution, because we've seen there how you change it, you just you just control the purse strings from London. Um, the next bit is you've got a high court in Australia. And the three judges who were appointed in 1903, so we were two years without a court, they were all delegates. And in fact, uh, Sir Samuel Griffith had drafted the first constitution in 1891. And they hadn't had all their own way building up to the Constitution as the final version that we thought went off to London. So when they become High Court judges, they now think, well, we can win all the arguments that we lost in debate. Uh, and they proceeded to more or less, well, within certain limits, of course, as they knew they couldn't do anything they liked. They interpreted the Constitution the way they wanted it to be written in the first place. Then a couple of years later, they appoint two more judges who were a bit more radical. And they were also at the Constitution Conventions, and they have their views. And so a battle goes on inside the court as to what's going to happen. Now, many, many cases go back and forth. And what they're doing in the main is extending the range of activities that the Commonwealth could engage in. Because at the time of Federation, nobody actually thought that the Commonwealth government was going to do very much at all inside Australia. It was there to deal with foreign things, foreign travel and transport and defence and foreign policy, immigration, those sorts of things. It wasn't supposed to run things inside Australia. But there was the Arbitration Court. So in 1913, 
there's a, a, a case that goes up from the Builders Labourers Federation. The master builders say this is ridiculous because the constitution says you can only deal with disputes of more than one state. And the only way you could have a builders labourers dispute in more than one state is if you're building a bridge across the Murray River. Anyway, the High Court said, no, no, it's all right, they can do this. And then it went to the Privy Council. The Privy Council said, we can't be bothered hearing this. Then the big case, however, 1920, and it's known as the engineer's case. But the reason is that the arbitration court wanted to do something about government employees. And there was a battle that had gone on through the 1890s as to whether or not state public servants were to be controlled by Commonwealth law or whether Commonwealth public servants could be controlled by state law. And this really came to a head in 1920 over some engineers who were working for uh, a government instrumentality, I think it was a sawmill, in Western Australia. And that case got to the High Court, and the High Court said that the Commonwealth law is going to prevail in this case. And that decision was really pivotal to the way in which much of the rest of the Constitution was interpreted by the High Court thereafter. As important as that was, something else was happening, and that was Section 92. Now, Section 92 says that a trade and commerce between the states shall be absolutely free. Now, in the 1890s, almost everybody thought what that meant was there would be no tariffs between one colony and another, as there had been. Now, if you brought something from New South Wales into Victoria, you had to pay a surcharge on it. And that is the part of the Federation was to get rid of all of that. Uh, so you'd only have the one tariff around Australia. So this was Section 92. As the judges began to interpret it, and it took time for this to happen, they extended this not just to cover tariffs between the old colonies and the new states. They interpreted absolute freedom in an absolute sense to mean that private entrepreneurs were not to be regulated by the Commonwealth government. And eventually, in 1948, they used this to defeat the Bank Nationalisation Act. And then in the 1950s and 60s, it goes even madder. And they start to refuse to allow the state governments to charge any kind of road tax on a haulier who crosses from one state into another. So what was happening was if you were moving inside Victoria or somewhere and you were close to the border, you just go across the Murray, turn around, come back again and claim that you were engaged in interstate intercourse and you were free from the state taxes. And this went on for about 20 years. And they finally had to sort that out because I mean, clearly, these road hauliers were getting more and more of them in the 50s and 60s, were tearing up the road, not making any contribution to their being made passable as roads at all. So the High Court at this time, from really from the beginning uh, through, has reinterpreted lots of the bits of the Constitution, but Section 92 in particular. And this went on until 1988, whereupon a case, bizarrely, about a crayfish. 
and a regulation as to how big a crayfish had to be before you could take it out of the water. Got to the High Court. And at this point, bizarrely, all the governments, the state governments, the Commonwealth government, all got together and said, we want to change the way Section 92 was interpreted. And it went back to original intent. All of this stuff about, oh, individuals can do what they like. No, the court now said it was meant to be about a tariff between one state colony and another, and that's how we're now going to interpret it. So, bizarrely, the current situation in Section 92 is about the length of a crayfish, such as great weighty matters that come up before the High Court. However, all of this pales into insignificance beside two big events, the two great slaughters, 1914-18 and 1939-45. During the first of the great slaughters, the Commonwealth government for the first time imposes its own income tax. Until then, it collected tariff duties and some other uh, taxes, uh, and the states were the ones who collected income tax. And that made an enormous difference to things. But it was even more so in 1942, when in order to wage the second great slaughter, the government introduced uniform taxation. And uniform taxation meant that only the Commonwealth was going to collect the taxes. It's intriguing to note that in 1976, the Fraser government passed a law saying that the states can raise taxes if they want to. Needless to say, the politics of imposing your own income tax upon your state, no Premier wanted to go near it. So from 1942 onwards, the taxing power in the Commonwealth, uh, in Australia, passed entirely to the central government. Now, once you've got the money, you can do all sorts of other things. It gives you great power to be able to decide all kinds of things, which aren't really in the Constitution. For example, the word education does not appear in the Constitution. There is nowhere where it says that this Commonwealth government should do anything about education. It does say, with an amendment in 1946, that it can pay some benefits to students. What we found, of course, is that Howard and company have poured billions of dollars into the posh schools. You've got Howard also saying to the states, if you don't allow chaplains in, then you're not getting any money. And then Gillard comes along with her serial child abuse of NAPLAN and says, if you don't have that, you're not getting money. They've used the purse strings, even though there's really a big stretch to be able to say they have any constitutional right, that there's any power in the Constitution that enables them to do what they do and to virtually run the education systems throughout Australia, even controlling what is in the general syllabus. That's the big changes that come over there. It's important to note about the, about the war is that there is what is called the defence power. The defence power simply says that the Commonwealth government is going to defend Australia. What happened during the First World War is that they introduced the War Precautions Act. This meant that, as the Solicitor General said afterwards, we phrased the, the War Precautions Act in such a way that anything that John Citizen did was likely to be a crime. Uh, and as we know, this happened to the Wobblies and the IWW and 
anyone carrying a red flag or all this subversive activity was caught up under that and a great deal more as well if you're a German resident in Australia all of these things so that all came under the Defence Powers Act Um, the High Court takes a view that if the future of the country is at stake then the Defence Powers virtually let the government do whatever they like but if like say in 2003 over Iraq the Defence Power there doesn't come into much effect whatsoever but it is it is there it's been extended in recent times to allow the federal government to put the australian troops more into what they call maintaining law and order in the states so that's been an extension of the of, of state power there as well there are a few other things that are interesting just in passing of course in 1900 there was no radio, there was no television, there was no aviation. They've just assumed, it, well, somebody has to run it. So just, that's become a Commonwealth responsibility in those three, three major areas there. We very carefully avoided talking about the voice because I don't want to get into a discussion about the virtues or otherwise of the voice. However, it is important, I think, to make the following observation. On the right, the people who are campaigning against the voice say, oh, we're going to do everything. We're going to abolish Anzac Day and Australia Day and all kinds of stuff. What we need to be careful of is to be reminded that the fact that there is wording to do something in the Constitution does not mean to say that a government has to do anything. And I'll give you the most powerful example. There are 128 sections in the Constitution. Four of them relate to something called Interstate Commission. Have any of the listeners heard of the Interstate Commission? What effect does it have? Well, let me tell you this. It didn't exist. They didn't set one up until 1913. So we managed to go 12 years, four sections of the Constitution not being operative. They appointed three commissioners for seven years. When their terms were up, they abolished the commission. It wasn't there anymore. After that, it didn't come back until Whitlam introduced it again at the day, the dying days of the government, but it didn't get operative. Hawke reintroduced it in 1984, but it was confined only to transport, mainly trying to save Tasmania from disappearing down the Gurgler. And then after six years, it was absorbed into the Productivity Commission. So that there's only been an interstate commission, despite the fact that it's what it's supposed to do. I mean, all the people who complain, there's not enough detail. Lines and lines and lines of detail about what the Interstate Commission's supposed to do. And it's only existed for 13 of the 122 years that Federation has operated. So the fact that if the voice vote gets up and the voice goes in to the Constitution, that does not mean to say that Dutton would have to do anything about it. He would not have to set up a commission. And if it did exist and he inherited it, he wouldn't have to fund it. I mean, people, I think, need to be reminded this, not just about the voice, but about the Constitution in general. The fact that it says something doesn't mean that a government has to do it. And it certainly doesn't mean to say that it has to do it in a particular way. Right from the beginning, there was a thought about old age pension. But it didn't say how old you had to be. It didn't say whether they were men and women, how much they were going to be, all of it. All it said was, I'll just mention, 
And then, as I said, there are all these other things like radio, aviation, television, education that aren't in the Constitution, which the government spends billions of dollars on. When we think about the Constitution, if we do, we need to be aware of these little traps along the way. The other example, of course, was that, you know, here we've got the Interstate Commission that's supposed to exist and hasn't really. We look at the changes in 1967. One of them, as you know, was that henceforth the Commonwealth could make laws for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, which had been stopped from doing in the 1890s for, for quite complicated reasons. We won't go into that at the moment. Then in 67, that bit was taken out. Now, there have been some little bits where the Commonwealth has used it to do some things that it couldn't have done before. Really, if you look at this power, which was a power really to override the states, should have meant that the Commonwealth government could tell the states what they had to do in relation to Aborigines. And if you look at the protection of heritage sites in Western Australia recently, there's not much sign that anything changed very much in 1967. However, practical things intervened. In 1911, South Australia gave the Commonwealth Government the Northern Territory. At the same time, New South Wales gave the Commonwealth the Australian Capital Territory. And it also got Jarvis Bay. And both the Northern Territory and Jarvis Bay had considerable Indigenous populations. So now we've got the Commonwealth, but the Constitution says you can't make laws about Aborigines, and yet they've got landed with all these Aborigines and they proceed to make laws about them. What else are they going to do? The other bit, of course, is, I mean, I think it's worth just saying, I should have said this a minute ago, about 67, when the Commonwealth does nothing, the High Court then has to intervene in the Mabo case. Mabo, as a High Court case, should never have happened. All of that should have been sorted out under the Commonwealth power that it got in 1967. But no party was a bit in the Northern Territory, but they didn't need the Constitution to act in the Northern Territory. They could do what they like in the Northern Territory. There was nothing in the way there. So the High Court's intervention, you know, they were attacked for judicial activism. All they were doing was making up for the inertia of the federal parliament, whether under the ALP or under the coalition. The other bit in 67, of course, was that Indigenous people were not to be counted in the census. The great expert on the Constitution, how good written, J.A. Larnose, who'd read every scrap of paper from everybody who was involved in writing the Constitution, says, I cannot work out why it was there and why it survived. There's just no indication to me. There have been suggestions that it was about taxation and things, but it doesn't appear in any of the of the surviving paperwork, people's diaries or anything. You can't get it. However, before the first census in 1911, the Attorney General says what you know, he called half-castes were not Aborigines and should be counted. Now, the statistician who was across the old bugger said that's all very well, but how are my census takers going to tell the difference between a half-caste and a full-blood Aborigine. And the statistician said, it can't be done, I'm just going to count anyone that I happen to bump into. And so from 1911 onwards, Aborigines, however defined, were being counted. And indeed, in 66, 
the year before the 67 referendum, which said that they were to be counted, they'd managed to count, I think, like 86,000 on that occasion. But as they pointed out, a lot of Aborigines were not identified. And we know that from Sally Morgan's book, where her family were passing as Indian rather than be identified as Aborigines. So things that are in the Constitution, in practice, don't necessarily get themselves worked out. During all the COVID lockdowns, David Littleproud, the government, whinging bizarrely that borders which he said were drawn at federation were being used more than 100 years later to block people travelling from Victoria to New South Wales. The poor dear doesn't realise that those boundaries were not drawn at federation. They were drawn by the empire throughout the 19th century. Some of them, like the nationals and the coalition, want to impose a test on newcomers to Australia, some kind of citizenship test to see whether they can be allowed to become Australian. Before they do that, I think they should impose a test on themselves. There should be one to be allowed to nominate for Parliament. There should be another one before you're allowed to take your seat. And there should be an even harder one before you become a cabinet minister. They're the kind of citizenship tests that we should be thinking about having. Now, I said right at the beginning, the first rewrite of the Constitution was done by the British Parliament, the Colonial Secretary, on behalf of the British bondholders. Come 1986, the world's greatest treasurer is preparing the budget when a phone call comes through from Solomon Brothers in New York to Treasury that says, if you don't change two of the laws you brought in proposing, we're not going to be able to lend you any more money. That came on the weekend. By Tuesday, the two laws had been abandoned. So whether it was London and the bond market in the 1890s, or whether it is New York and the lenders there today, where is it in the Constitution that says that bankers in New York can tell the Australian government to drop a couple of laws that they want to introduce? It's not there at all. But what we have to do, I think, is to realise that when you're thinking about a voice to Parliament for the Australian people as a whole, power resides not in the National Gas Works in Canberra. Power resides in the Pentagon, in the National Security Agency, and in New York and Detroit and the, the corporates of the US corporate warfare state. That's where the voice comes from. What we need is not a few more words in the Constitution. What we need are mass voices outside Parliament pressing for all sorts of changes for all Australian working people that will provide us with the benefits to which we are entitled because we create the value in this society. And many thanks to Marxist historian Humphrey McQueen, who's also a writer. Hey, you all out there? Let's join the National Day of Action to stop black deaths in custody. 1pm Saturday the 7th of October at the State Library of Victoria. We need to implement the recommendations from the 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody now. You say you 
respect country and you believe in black justice, then you turn up because we have an opportunity on the 7th of October to push this government to implement recommendations that will keep our people alive. For more information, go to blacksovereignmovement.com. That's B-L-A-K sovereignmovement.com. Black Sovereign Movement is a 3CR supporter. Speaking now with Bob Phelps, the Executive Director of the Gene Ethics Network. And let's start, Bob, with the Roundup class action, which has begun in Melbourne a long time coming. Well, yes, it has. The class action against Monsanto over the uh, cause of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma has been an issue in Australia for about five years now, but finally it's in the federal courts. There are 800 plaintiffs, including agricultural workers and those who have used Roundup on their gardens. It'll be a nine-week trial, so it's going to be very interesting to see how it goes. 800 is a lot of plaintiffs, is that correct? It does seem like a lot, I suppose, in Australia, but uh, in America there are something like 130,000 who have uh, been making claims over their non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a cancer. They're now suffering as a result of their exposure to the glyphosate in the Roundup herbicide. The company, Bayer, which bought Monsanto several years ago, has already coughed up $11 billion for the first 100,000 claims. There are 30,000 remaining unresolved. Uh, Some of these settlements were pretty substantial, some of the early court settlements, but uh, since then they've done a deal for this sort of package, which will deliver between 25,000 and 250,000 to the claimants with an average of about 160, depending on how bad their uh, lymphoma is. Not much for life, is it? Well, no, it's life-threatening and it's miserable in the meantime, that's for sure. Monsanto, of course, has been a long-time bad actor, particularly in its ads. Uh, In the 1990s, it was claiming that Roundup was safe, non-toxic and biodegradable. The state of New York then took them to task and and to court. They got an agreement that they wouldn't lie in their ads anymore, but uh, Monsanto and Bayer have now had to um, spend another $6.7 because they broke that agreement and broke the law on false and misleading advertising. They're still at it. They're still lying about a product that is dangerous. And, uh, of course, the label, if you look at the label on any of the 500 different Roundup formulations on sale in Australia, uh, what you see is that uh, there are no real warnings for anybody that's using it uh, beyond wash your hands and, uh, you know, pretty basic stuff when, in fact, it's um, been classified by the UN Special Committee on Toxic Chemicals as a probable human carcinogen. Who's in charge of putting labels here in Australia, warnings? Well, that's the Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority. Uh, The Minister for Agriculture, uh, Murray Watt, was recently given a report from uh, Clayton Moots, a law firm, saying that the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority was captive of the uh, chemical industry and needed a good shake-up, and also that it uh, should be doing its assessments of chemicals in a more timely way, uh, because uh, 
some of these reviews have been going on for decades. And the latest, of course, to hit the, the news there is dimethoate, which was a chemical that was first slated for review in 1994 and is still allowed to be used both as a spray-on chemical on tropical fruits and vegetables. Now they've decided to ban it after 30 years. So it's about time that the APVMA was more thoroughly reviewed and uh, that the control that the transnational chemical industry has over that uh, supposed to be a public regulator broken. I don't hold your breath. I think most people would be horrified if they knew exactly or relatively how many pesticides and chemicals there are in our environment at the moment. How many are banned and how many are just fade away and just stay there? No one worries about them anymore. Well, the worst example of that is the PCBs and also the PFAS chemicals, which have been used in um, phones for damping down fires. And of course, now there are many hot spots around Australia where the PFAS has been sprayed in the uh, firefighting phones. And those local communities, which were, uh, they're called forever chemicals because they never degrade. Many of those communities have now received some compensation. But of course, it's not only in the environment, it's also in our food supply. Dimethoate that I just mentioned is a chemical that is not only sprayed on uh, avocados and mangoes and a whole raft of other tropical fruits such as bananas, custard apples, joas and guavas, lychees and pawpaw, but the growers have been dipping their fruit and vegetables in that chemical before sending them to market to kill the Queensland fruit fly. Those chemicals remain on those fruits. People are not warned. Uh, the shoppers are not warned that there's uh, chemical residues there. But the APVMA, the pesticides people, have had to now confront this because some monitoring, which was recently announced, um, showed that the residues were above the acceptable levels, so-called acceptable levels. Although the ban now applies to uh, mangoes and avocados, which were the test fruits, the others are still allowed to be sprayed and dipped, including citrus fruit. So the assumption that the skins of these fruit are peeled off and thrown away so that the, that the fruit itself is free of residues is not soundly based because a lot of people use the zest from, uh, from citrus fruits, of course, in their recipes. And fruit fly, which is now rampant across eastern and in parts of Western Australia as well. If you want to export fruit from Queensland to WA, for instance, um, you've got to treat it. And now, of course, the fallback position will be uh, fumigation or irradiation. That's as far as the top end of the industry is concerned. And I think, although there are only a couple of irradiation plants in Australia, which is giving the uh, industry some grief at the moment, I'm sure they'll knock up a few more before long and uh, start applying radiation to these fruits and vegetables to kill the larvae of fruit fly. It was approved about three years ago. The Food Authority approved the irradiation of these fruits and vegetables. They now want to increase the allowable level or dose of energy that's supplied to the uh, food uh, by 50%. So it looks like it didn't work out too well. As to organic growers, of course, they bag their fruit 
Uh, they can use traps or pheromone strips, and there are a number of other management strategies that they use uh, to avoid using these highly toxic chemicals. That's why increasingly prevalent view that you should go for organic is well and truly justified. Yes, it costs a little bit more, but if you want to stay well and well-fed, uh, organic is definitely the way to go. I remember you telling me years ago, Bob, about farms where they use a lot of chemicals and you go down behind the back sheds and you see all the, the empty containers of pesticides and whatever. We were walking past a golf course one day and you look around the back of the sheds of the golf course and there's just barrels and barrels of, I suppose, their pesticides. And all these people who play golf, I'd imagine, wouldn't have any idea of what's put into the grass that they're standing on. That's certainly true. Um, golf courses are a real hot spot in local communities uh, for spraying. They um, are most intense. It's repeated, so the stuff, of course, builds up. Of course, the chemical industry did a greenwash uh, a number of years ago when it started to uh, a program called Drum Muster, where it would actually pick up the empty drums. They gave instructions about washing them out and pouring the stuff down the drain, etc., and then they would come and pick up the drums. But how effective it is in practice is hard to say, and it certainly focuses more on farms than it would on the I think on something like a um, a golf course. Uh, golf courses are, are, are toxic <laughs> localities, and uh, yes, you're right. The golfers who are wandering around there are paying no attention at all to, fact, to the fact that they are um, wading through a toxic uh, mess should be warned. Uh, and I think that golf courses need to clean themselves up. It's bad enough that... Uh, Land managers on riverbanks and so on are still spraying Roundup, for instance, that gets into waterways and is a problem. But I think golf courses should be a particular target of action. Well, you're saying rinsing these drums out and tipping them out, and of course that goes into the creeks or the rivers. Well, it would tend to on a farming location. Uh, containing chemicals is a problem, and spray drift has been a chronic problem as well. And there's a whole program now of the industry because it was going to get regulated uh, that uh, warns people about certain chemicals that uh, are particularly prone to uh, drifting onto neighbouring properties and destroying other crops, etc. So particularly where you've got a genetically manipulated cotton crop or um, canola, you won't destroy your own crop if you spray with Roundup or now some other chemical from Bayer called glufosinate, which is also a herbicide, a broad-spectrum one. If you spray in the wind or even light breezes, uh, the chances of your harming a neighbouring crop are very high. And, of course, those neighbouring farmers have got no real recourse taking the companies and their neighbours to court to try and get some compensation has been an ongoing problem as well, more especially in the USA where genetically engineered crops are much more generally grown than they are here. It's a real issue and there have been some awards recently in the USA as a result of damage, particularly to orchards from spray drift. What's the story with GM Safflower? 
Oh, yes, that's the third crop that's been um, approved for growing in Australia. So we had the cotton, which was first approved in 1996, and now 100% of cotton in Australia is, is genetically manipulated. And, and also, of course, the canola, which is still contested, but uh, is a small part of the total canola crop. And then thirdly, in 2018, the Office of Gene Technology Regulator approved this new GWIS super hyaluric acid safflower. Well, safflower has been grown for a long time uh, as an industrial oil to replace petrochemicals, uh, but it was a very small industry. And when the genetically engineered variety came along, the OGTR approved it. Food Stamps Australia, New Zealand also approved it as a cooking oil. It's a good idea to have an industrial application for things like biofuels, plastics, lubricants and cosmetics as a backup to selling the oil uh, into the food supply. First developed by CSIRO and the Grains Research and Development Corporation, but they unsold it to a private company. And uh, with those approvals, the company then commissioned a number of growers around Australia to grow the new GWIS safflower that was going to be in demand for particularly biofuels. Now a lot of poor farmers uh, have got safflower genetically manipulated sitting in silos on their farms because the company hasn't got the money to buy it from them. Uh, we're talking $20 million. It looks like the whole thing is a fiasco from beginning to end. Uh, typically, the promises of genetically manipulated crops have come to nothing. The demand's not strong, but uh, in Europe, uh, most of our canola, which is not genetically manipulated, actually goes into the European market for biofuel production. The Europeans don't want genetically manipulated crops. So we won that market from the Canadians who grow the GM varieties. And uh, it's been a very good earner because we get a premium for that uh, GM-free canola. It's put into biofuels and then anything that's left over can be fed to animals because it's not genetically engineered. If it were, it wouldn't be allowed to be the, the balance of the crop after the production of the oil for biofuels would not be allowed to be sold into the animal feed uh, industry. We've had that favoured position of selling our canola and I guess the safflower was planned as a growth industry to go into Europe as well. Although biofuels are still very popular, of course, the electric vehicles are now upstaging them and I think the demand for electricity rather than biofuels is going to strengthen. Can we talk about bees for a few minutes, Bob? The varroa mite has apparently arrived. What's the impact of that? Are the bees in a weakened state because of the way that we farm now that they're more susceptible to a mite when it does come? This is a contested area and not one that I know too much about, to be honest, but it appears that other chemicals that are being used are weakening the bees and making them more susceptible to varroa uh, mite infestations. So it's a major problem, particularly in New South Wales, where this invasive pest has come in from overseas. And now varroa mite is very generally in uh, bee populations globally. But the real issue here is the neonicotine-based chemicals that are used uh, generally in agriculture. And uh, this is the one that particularly, I 
affects bees and other insects as well. I shouldn't say that it's only bees, but the decline in insect populations, which are also pollinators of crop plants and other plants in nature, has been in long-term decline as well. Those chemicals that are used in agriculture do seem to be responsible. And the other aspect of of it, of course, is that um, industrial seeds, which are now owned and controlled by just four companies globally, about two-thirds of the global seed supplies owned by just four companies, they actually coat the seed in a variety of different chemicals, insecticides, fungicides, bactericides, and repellents for animals and birds so they don't get the seed up and eat them. These create a hazard for our pollinators, particularly bees, which are crucial to uh, crops like almonds, for instance. Agriculture's really between a rock and a hard place. You know, on the one hand, they're using the chemicals and the seed, which is now treated with all these toxins. Uh, and on the other hand, they need the bees to be brought in to pollinate their crops. So it's a pretty vexed situation. And the only answer really for farmers for the future, I think, is to jump off the chemical treadmill and start looking for other ways to operate their farming systems. And of course, organic is one. There's a whole lot of talk about regenerative agriculture now, which is still predominantly a chemical-based system, particularly no-till, where you don't till, but you spray with herbicides to kill the weeds before you plant the next crop. We just need a new a new way of doing things. Farmers are very slow to change, unfortunately, particularly when they're under pressure from uh, advisors and chemical companies who have got their own interests at heart. And also less and less small farmers being taken over by larger companies? Oh, yes. The long-term trend is get big or get out of farming. More mechanised, there are new artificial intelligence systems, robotics, drones and a whole raft of other vanguard technologies that are being brought into farming so that the farmers can actually cope. Of course, they have seasonal labour to help them harvest and weed and do various other things if necessary. But typically, farms are now run by very, very few people. I think it's of the order of half to one percent of the Australian population are engaged in agriculture of some kind. And the number of people out there on the land has been shrinking. Although, of course, now there's a big drift following COVID back to rural areas. But most of these people are city folks who are going to rural towns to set up their businesses and run their working lines from remote communities where they don't have to put up with the stresses and strains of city life as well. The picture is changing. It's evolving. But the big thing is get those chemicals uh, and those industrial seeds out of agriculture and let's get back to basics. It's interesting, though, that a number of those people that move out of the city, go to smaller country areas, actually start their own little gardens and produce there using organic methods. Oh, yes. Well, of course, that's one of the reasons to move. I should say that city gardeners, particularly with kids um, learning about gardening in school and so on, are now very important to the total food supply as well. Hopefully more and more of those people will be uh, chemical-free as well. 
finding other ways to manage insects and weeds in their, in their small patches, but still making a very significant contribution to the overall food supply. You know, it's all very well for these farmers on huge acreages to be producing commodities, wheat, barley and oats and other broadacre crops, canola, cotton and so on. But the vast majority of those are actually ex- exported as commodities, not value-added in Australia, sent over to overseas markets. We've been engaged in debating the issue around a federal inquiry, which is just closed, on food insecurity in Australia. Because despite the rather tacit or not very thought out opinions before the COVID-19 that oh, Australia can feed itself because it produces so much um, agricultural product and we've got a relatively small population. When it came to the crunch, of course, prices flew up and the actual supply of food in Australia became rather more tenuous. And we've got something in the order of uh, 2 million Australians who are food insecure. Their rights to food are not being met. They're reliant on things like food bank. Kids are going hungry. This inquiry that's going on at the moment is focused very much on the early parts of the food supply cycle. But we've said, hang on a minute, you know, you need also to be looking at retailers and shoppers who are in this bind of now having to... uh, reduce their food budgets because they're paying more for rent, energy, mortgage repayments, etc., etc. What goes first? Well, it's the food budget that comes under pressure. This is the result of increasing farm supply inputs like the seed that we already talked about. The price of seed on farms has gone up something like 200% over the last decade. Of course, the chemical inputs are very expensive as well, something like $5 billion a year in Australian agriculture is spent on agrochemicals. We've got to do something about that and we need to make sure that the whole system, the so-called food security system, actually does serve the people who need it. I just hope that the, um, the inquiry does its job properly and actually looks at that end of the food supply chain as well as the chemical companies and everybody else who's saying, oh yeah, we can do it, you know, more genetically manipulated crops, more chemicals, etc etc crop life in particular which is the mouthpiece for most of the agrochemical and gm companies supplying farmers in australia was given a hearing and our request to go and be heard by the committee was turned down it's very much industry driven and industry oriented uh, the clayton Mooch report shows that our regulators have also been captive of the chemical industry and have not been doing their job now for the last 30 years that inquiry, is it also looking at what looks like price gouging with food prices? No, afraid not. The big supermarket chains and particularly what they do to farmers and so on is not on the agenda. Particularly the big two, Coles and Woolworths, are very good at putting on specials. But who pays for the specials? Uh, Of course, it's the farmers. Uh, So farming is, again, also a business where, um, particularly in dairy, where um, farmers are really, they're squeezed. On one side, they've got their input costs, and on the other side, they've got these huge monoliths of uh, saying back to them, well, we want to sell cheap milk and dairy products. uh, You've got to cop sweet the reduced prices that we're giving you. Dairy has been going south. People are leaving dairy every week 
the number of dairy farmers has gone from a decade ago in excess of 10,000 to around five or 6,000 remaining dairy farmers who have got big, milking more cows, more mechanisation than they were a decade ago just to survive. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.